This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. I don't. I don't have a, an investment in. That didn't really have a joke in it. It was just me telling you what happened in the movie, the nineteen ninety four Mara Wilson vehicle Matilda. I loved her in uh, in Mrs. No, nineteen ninety six. I'm sorry, nineteen ninety six. She was she was clutch in Mrs. Doubtfire. Hello. She didn't say the, that line, but that she was, was Mr. Funny. Mrs. Doubtfire said that. Mr. Doubtfire. Said well. That. You can see why I'd be confused. It's a very confusing film. Did you know? Did you know that that's Robin Williams in uh, in heavy makeup that whole time? He's Mrs. Doubtfire. Well, I did fall asleep as soon as I saw Harvey, Fire- Harvey Firestein. So yeah, I did not know that. I missed that part of the movie. What a weird, what a weird movie. <laughs> what a weird time to be alive. When that was your landmark theatrical release. That was like the decade of Robin Williams. Is like Aladdin, Mrs. Doubtfire, Jumanji. Who was Mrs. Doubtfire for? Kids? He totally gets wasted at the end of that movie and embarrasses himself right bad. Like, is that cool for kids? I don't know. I get, like, is any of that cool for kids? Yeah. Is gender confusion? Like, I guess they got to learn about it sometime. Yeah. It's not, he's not confused. He's playing an elaborate con. It's, I wouldn't say gender confusion is whether or not that's the issue. Is c- movies about con men good for kids? <laughs> oh, no. This is Doubtfire Conversations. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Hello. Hello. That's all we got. See you next week. <laughs> Try to be happy. Bye. <laughs> no, I am. Uh, I've got a bit of a cold, and we had a big weekend at Book Riot this weekend. What? Yeah, Book Riot Live. It was a good show. And um, we, yeah, we went and we saw Margaret Atwood, and we saw some people act out Shakespeare, Star Wars. Yeah, it was pretty fun. And then we did our panel on Sunday morning, which like a lot of you showed up to, and then some of you came out to drink with us the night before. Yeah, it was cool. And it was it was really great to meet all of you. It was a really fun show. I really like their vibe, and I'm hoping that we can work with them to, again on some stuff in the future. Yeah, we'll keep you posted, but even if we're not there, you should probably still like keep on lookout for events like that, because it was just a really friendly atmosphere, and if you cared about books at all, you probably would have had a good time. So. Yeah, so so thanks to everyone who came out to see us. Thanks, like it was just it was really great to meet you. Like we we got around to asking I think most of the people we met how they found the show, and I think I was surprised by the answer like every time but one. Like once it was like oh Margaret H Wilson was on, and then I listened because of that, and then the, the rest of the time it was like oh I had no idea that we were on whatever podcast that is this this is that you're talking about. Yeah, it might as well have been I saw the URL like carved on the wall of a bathroom. Like the amount of reference I had for 
the myriad places that people had heard of us, which was kind of very flattering and very humbling um, that you all are spreading the word as well as you are. Um, yeah, so, so thanks for that. that. Yeah. Uh, for a fine time, go to overduepodcast.com. <laughs> okay, so on this podcast, we talk about Mrs. Doubtfire <laughs> and we read books. Every week, one of us reads a book that we've never read before and then explains it to the other one. And we serve as a listener surrogate and make stupid jokes, which hopefully make you laugh. And it all adds up to something that's entertaining on average. On average, <laughs> I'd say. It balances out. <laughs> Craig, what did you read this week? I read The Last of the Wine by Mary Renault. And it is not a story of the party we were at last night. No. There was actually some wine left over. We, it was, we had to leave before they ran out of wine, I think. Mm-hmm. But I did have some wine. It was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Might explain a few things about our general <laughs> energy level right now. <laughs> I think it's okay. Uh, so this book is historical fiction set in ancient Greece, which is not anything I had encountered before. Um, so we, we'll get to that. But we should probably talk about uh, Miss Mary Renault first. Yeah, hit me. She was born in 1905 in her... Mary Renault's a pen name, actually. She was born Eileen Mary Challens. Challens? Challens? Yeah, and we we looked around quite a bit to figure out, like, why she wrote under a pen name, like, if there was any reason, and um, we found a whole lot of nothing. So, like, maybe she just had a pen name. It's not a case where she was a female author, like, writing under a male pen name to get get the respect that was actually due her no it was just it was just a pen name as far as we can tell yeah it's it's funny the we'll talk specifically about how this is explored in last of the wine but a lot of her work you know is talking about homosexual homosexuality and she's credited as being one of the first british authors to openly portray just homosexual relationships in books um and people thought that she was a gay man using this pen name Hmm. Uh, because I think the laws were such that women could have homosexual relationships. This is in Britain, um, though it probably was not frowned. It was probably not you know, smiled upon at the time. Uh, but it was actually illegal for for men to have them, um, which might have been why people presumed that she was a gay man. Uh, she started writing at a very young age and was into cowboy stories, apparently. Okay. Which is kind of cool. But then she fell in love with Greek philosophy and Plato uh, went to St. Hughes College, Oxford, where she was tutored by J.R.R. Tolkien, among others. And oh, I've heard of him. Yeah. I, I seem to remember something about him. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if I recall correctly. I think, yeah, I read like all those books for the podcast, mm-hmm. and it went over really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like two months of my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can never get it back. That's not how time works. Uh, she kind of then made that her focus, and in the 30s, though, she did train to be a nurse where she met Julie Millard, who would become her lifetime partner. Uh, and she started out writing like hospital stories set in hospitals, which is her experience. And some of them had some kind of implicit uh, homosexual relationships. And then she moved to South Africa in the 40s after her book Return Tonight won her $150,000. This is the MGM prize, I guess. Yeah. Moved to Africa uh, where she kind of wrote the the rest of the books that would, she would be known for throughout her career, including three on Alexander the Great, 
and then the two in the 50s, the charioteer, which is about 40s servicemen trying to you know have a relationship that was platonic in nature, like platonic mm. love, not just like hanging out platonically. Not just like having sex with Plato. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the last of the wine, which was, I believe, 56, 1956. Right. Um, and the charioteer is the one that I said was probably the first to depict homosexual love explicitly. Mm-hmm. And among the stuff that she wrote about Alexander the Great is a uh, is a nonfiction biography. Now, I I tried to find like a scholarly reaction to this book, mm-hmm. and it I, like it seems like a lot of people don't really have like at least as far as the scholarly stuff goes, like people don't have an opinion on it. It's not like an in cold blood situation where it's passed forward as nonfiction, but then there are a lot of like big holes in it that have become part of the scholarship around the the book it's like it's it's perceived as favorable to alexander mm-hmm. and, but possibly like favorable in reaction to like unfavorable opinions of him among other scholars at the time you yeah know? because because i think her her deal was that and i think we'll get into this some with the last of the wine but her deal was that people who were thinking about alexander then were applying societal norms to him that would not have like those value judgments just did not exist or would not have existed back in the culture he was living in. Yeah. It's you're talking about scholars in the mid 20th century who have just come out of world war two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anybody who has a giant empire like that is going to, you know, invite some criticism for a variety of reasons, for whatever reason, I yeah. can't imagine who. <laughs> uh, and then on top of that, you have the, possibility of uh homosexual love which is taboo at the time and uh because of the other books she's written i think people have been cautious to say that she kind of like had you know the best scholarship around on alexander the great because clearly she was interested in certain things and interested in uh, certain parts of his history and i personally don't know alexander the great's whole deal well enough to kind of like fact check mary redult it's yeah, not like what we're I, do I did here. the classics major thing, and I'm going to try and guide us through like the Peloponnesian War and stuff. But I definitely was more of a Latinist than than a Greek guy and a Hellenist. Is that correct? Greek, Greek Hellenophile. Yeah, That's I the right Hellenist word, right? Sounds right. Yeah, I think so. Um, the kind of other thing I guess to note to take note of with regard to is when she moved to South Africa, she got involved in the Black Sash movement in the 50s and 60s, which was. A kind of a women's movement against apartheid and segregation. Um, though she did kind of retry- this is one criticism of hers that she kind of eschewed the gay pride movement of the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. She kind of retreated into her writing rather than uh, throw her weight behind a politicized identification movement. Sure, um, which is I think a lot of people who may have found either validation or solace or uh, kindred spirits in the books that she was writing were then disheartened to not have her as a political ally. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And she definitely, um, she found fame in her own, you know, in her own lifetime, which is not always the case with people who are writing about these kinds of issues, like before they come into their own. So yeah, last of the wine was big in the gay community. Um, JFK, said that she was his favorite author at one point, which I thought was kind of cool. I bet JFK loved Alexander the Great, though. (laughs) I'm just going to say, like, anybody who's going to be president probably 
doesn't dislike him. I feel like every every world leader going back to Julius Caesar has the moment where they look at the statue of Alexander the Great and they get upset because he did more <laughs> in his short little lifetime than they have done in theirs. I'll never be that great, they say. I'll <laughs> just be I'll just be John A great. I'll never be the great even if my name had been Alexander. <laughs> There's always Alexander the fine, Alexander the above average, Alexander the pretty great, but there was someone else before me. Yeah. Yeah. Alexander the excels in certain areas, needs improvement in others. Alexander the, you'd have a beer with him, but you would introduce him to your daughter. Mm-hmm. That's a very specific Alexander That's, that I think I mean, we've we all are met. getting more and more yeah. specific. <laughs> Alexander the guy. Who you trust to fix your brakes without gouging you too much. <laughs> Alexander, the guy who always knows where the hippest bars in town are. Ooh, that guy's a good guy to know. All right. He's he's great. He's pretty great. <laughs> he's pretty great. <laughs> I would hang out with him. Um so but let's talk about this book, I guess. Okay. Right? Do you want to take a break first and then we'll talk about the book? Yeah, let's take a break. Alexander the break. Andrew, what's your favorite website? Overduepodcast.com. It's a pretty good website. How did you make it? Because you made it. I like kind of told you. <laughs> this is how you and I make websites. Is like you make it and then you show it to me and I have notes. And some of them you go, are those real notes? And I go, yep. And then you <laughs> tweak it. So how did you do that? Um, I did it by using Squarespace. Do you want to know more about No, I, I'm not. Yeah, Squarespace is pretty great. Um. If you go to squarespace.com slash overdue, you can find out more. Squarespace is a service that lets you make professional looking websites regardless of your skill level. So even if you don't know the difference between HTML and CSS and a hole in the ground, you can still make a site that looks pretty good. Uh-huh. They give you they give you easy to use tools. They give you great looking templates that you can start with. And um, they are trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world, including our brand. That's true, including our brand. Oh, our band, brand is so respected. And it's relying on Squarespace <laughs> a little bit. Uh, I think you... They don't have this here, but I've had a great time with their customer service people as well. There was I have a distinct memory of like a year or two ago totally messing up a podcast thing. And they were like, no, that's us. Don't worry about it. Yeah, no, every 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 time we've ever gotten in touch with them, they've been like within a business day, they've gotten back to us. And when they haven't gotten us a specific answer, they've definitely like made us feel heard. Yes. Like in the case of like feature requests and that kind of stuff. So they, they definitely seem like really cool people. Um again, if you go to squarespace.com slash overdue, you can find out more. And uh when you decide to uh sign up for the free website that you've this free built. trial website. Free that trial you're website. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when you decide to make it official, enter the coupon code overdue, and we can save you ten percent off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And we're back. And whoa, hey, did you surprised me? I wasn't ready for it. Hey, we're back. Hey, we're back. Whoa, hey. So this book is interesting in that I'm gonna (laughs) mess I'm gonna mess some stuff up 
because it's set in a real time, like this took place in late 5th century uh, Greece, B.C., so or B.C.E., um, depending on your nomenclature preferences. Let's go B.C.E. B.C.E. sounds fine. Mm-hmm. And this is important because it takes place during the Peloponnesian War, which apparently Andrew is an expert on, so he's going to help us with that. I'm not going to say I'm an expert, but okay. It's just trying to I'm an my- expert. Just trying to set the bar low for me. How about that? Okay. <laughs> uh, and I will try not to like apologize throughout the show for stuff I'm missing, like missing or messing up. So I'm doing that all right now to try and get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the main thing to know about this book is that it's centered on a fictional character named Alexius. And there's a note like at the end of the novel that's like, yo, that guy was made up. Uh, his whole family's made up. Don't worry about it. And let me tell you about these other people who are in the book that were totally real. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of like a rogues gallery of turn of the 4th century BCE important Greek people. Like, Soc- okay. like Socrates is there and Phaedo's there and Plato's there and uh, all sorts of other people that I will forget, including Xenophon and Critias and other folks' names who will become important later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, I'm reading this going like, who is... Occasionally, I would like thumb over a name and let the Kindle app tell me if that person was real. That's fair. That's like, not a bad strategy. <laughs> it's kind of did, a, the, did the end of the book out like lay out everybody who was real, or at least everybody of consequence? Everybody of consequence. Um, okay. But I obviously, I didn't skip to that while I was reading it, because I, I, you know... I could have done that, but I didn't. That kind of thing can be can be rough because, like, and I'm sure Renault knew this, like, going in because she she had enough of an interest in this period to write a nonfiction biography of Alexander the Great. So surely she is aware of the weaknesses in our source material, but so little has survived, like, even of the, like, take a playwright like Euripides mm-hmm. or, like, pretty much any of them. Like so little of their written works survive. Yes. That some like in some cases all we have is like a list of their plays and some of the plays we have and some of the plays we have like the name and that's it. Yes. Like I, I love and I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before, but I really do love the ways that we find like these ancient documents and restore them and get them back. Like my fa- my absolute favorite one is when people dig up like mummies. <laughs> okay. And use like really powerful scanners to like separate the, because when people wrapped up mummies, like a lot of the time you just wrapped them up with whatever was around. And so sometimes that was books. <laughs> what if it was a really important book? I must not have been that important. You got to use it for mummy paper. When, so. I, when I go, when I go, please wrap me up in like crossword puzzles. What or were something. ancient libraries like? Could you just like check out a mummy and like. <laughs> Go and read him in the park. We only had one copy, and Steve used it to wrap up his dad. So we oh, made man. we d- made him donate his dad to the library. <laughs> He's over there under D for dads. But yeah, we we have so we have so many holes in our understanding. And so if you're gonna make a book, if you're gonna write a book where it's like some guy chilling with Plato and Socrates, you've got to be like careful about that because our understanding of these people is is far from fully formed. Like certainly it's it's not the same as if you're writing a period drama about like the 1960s or something and you can go back and talk to a bunch of people who were there and like fill in 
those little gaps like how did people brush their teeth like how do people go to the bathroom like the little slice of life stuff that you don't yeah you don't get in like plays and books full of like speeches and that the, the kind of stuff that's survived up until now and what she's basing some of these characterizations on are books and plays and other forms of text that are greek and i don't understand them um by the it's people all greek to you yeah it is all greek to me <laughs> I use that joke right there um he only had one shot <laughs> yeah well, we missed it a I little bit it. um some of it's like this is the version that of that person that Plato wrote down. Well, Plato's mm-hmm. in the book, so I get like, do we trust that source? Whose version of Plato are we using? At a certain level, I just kind of threw all of that out and said I wouldn't know, so I don't care. Uh, I care as much as a book makes me care, but I don't care if she's getting it right, mm-hmm. which is probably for me it's preferable because I know if I have a passing familiarity with something and a book starts getting it wrong, I'm going to get annoyed. Yeah. Right. So I'm probably a great audience for this book. Cause I sure if that's I'm what happens, start, I'm going to start a Tumblr where every time a, t- a character on a TV show holds their phone upside down, <laughs> I'm going to start like screenshotting it and documenting it. That's that. That's what that impulse manifests. The equivalent for me, me is yeah. when uh, people are in commercials for stuff like Nintendo and you just see them sh- just the controller all over the place. Like, <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm fighting you real hard. Ah, that's, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Unless yeah, it's you- nowhere. Looking at somebody holding a controller is usually not that interesting. <laughs> it's the least interesting thing. <laughs> so this is a book about a young man named Alexius who, whose father didn't really want him at first fine his father myron uh they're living in athens and his father myron had an older son who he thought was going to be pretty cool and he said maybe we don't need to keep my second son around but his wife at the time was like no i like him let's keep him and then myron had to go off to like fight some spartans or something and when he came back his wife and his older son had died so he said well i guess alexis i'll keep you i guess i guess i'll let you stick around well Lo and behold, Alexis turns out to be pretty good looking and pretty smart and pretty good at running. He's basically Mm -hmm. like he's one of the cool kids. He's the whole package. He is the whole package. Uh, And so as he grows up, he has a mother, but it's it's a a stepmother. And much is made early in the book of how he thinks of her like a mother. And this kind of becomes important a little bit later, but it's. He, he's never known anyone else, so this relationship is kind of really important to him, even though she's adopted him, and that's mm-hmm. its own form of generosity in this society where you could just leave someone... The word they use is exposed. It's like, go expose my child, which means just put them out in the wilderness and never think about them again. Right. Um, so he is hanging out with his dad, who's kind of involved in politics in Athens, and there's like a dinner party... And people are starting to notice him. We're getting into Greek pederasty here. Mm-hmm. And the he's old, a sexy boy. He's a sexy boy. And the older men are paying attention to him. And it's kind of gross sometimes to him. He's like, this is not, I don't like these men. This is, hmm. Um, and at a dinner party, Critias, that's how I'm going to get all these wrong. Critias uh, spills wine on him. And then like, 
does the old like, hey, I'm so sorry. Let me touch your garment and you. Uh, yeah, it's really awful. That uh, that manifests on uh, on vases and things mm-hmm. as the it's called the up and down gesture. Oh, which usually, is so weird. Where like with one hand they like cup your chin and like look into your face, and then with the other hand they mess around with your stuff. It's it's like a whole, it, but that's like part of the social contract, right? Yeah, like like before we talk too much more about this, like it's super super important to to note that. The norms, like the way that this was seen in society is absolutely nothing like it's seen in society now. Like it's older men were expected to kind of take a boy, like typically between the ages of 14 and 18. Um, but it's like they it's after they sort of look like adults, but like before they grow a beard. They are called the rough. It, yeah. A Phoebes is the yes. name. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it was it was expected of older men that they would take these younger men in under their wing it was expected of younger men that they would resist but the you know the right amount before ultimately giving in yep um and then it was and then from there i mean there would there was a sexual aspect to it like definitely but it was seen as almost as more of like a mentorship or apprenticeship thing Mm -hmm. and then once the once the boy turned into a full-fledged man like it was expected that these two men would retain a friendship but that the boy would then turn around and find a boy of his own to like mentor and to to educate and and yeah it was it's like to the, to the point where like homosexuality was not totally normalized like if there are two adult men who are in a homosexual relationship the one who was taking on the like the role of the penetrated or like the more feminine role was looked down upon. Yes. But the other guy was not because like the the guy who was submitting was like he was hanging on to that that boyhood role longer than was appropriate. And so that was that wasn't cool. But like old men sleeping on your stoop so that they could like appeal to you or to your parents to like let them take you in that was fine and that totally happens in this book yeah there's like a whole there's a whole chapter where people are just suiting him yeah so i'm 100 percent sure like like as you were reading this i'm sure there was a lot of stuff that got you skeeved and i don't know if you wanted to talk about anything in particular but yeah that's i mean and that's one of renault's big things is that this society was just totally different from ours yes totally different and she doesn't once it gets to who Alexius ends up being with uh, this older man named Lysus, who's only uh, about eight to ten years his senior, mm-hmm. as opposed to some of the slightly older men who are into him. They it stops resting on moments of uh, discomfort on his part. Mm-hmm. Like once Alexius finds someone that he feels that for, um, at it, that point it becomes normalized. Yeah, right? and and even the earlier section like this this incident with Critias I mentioned uh, I didn't think about this at the time but I want to give Renault credit like he later this might be some licensing on her part because he then becomes an important antagonist at the end of the book and that's part <laughs> of historical record so she's like setting up this moment where he does something shocking that the protagonist uh, clearly feels not like not violated in the in the modern way we would think about it but he certainly is not on board with it 
he, mm-hmm. he tries to avoid Critias's advances and, and successfully does af- from there on out. So he ends up falling for this guy, Lysus, who he meets while he's hanging out with Socrates. The amount of this book that is dedicated to dudes hanging out with Socrates <laughs> is absurd. <laughs> and I guess that's just what you do. He's in town. He's this older guy. He has a family, but he doesn't really do much except sit around and like talk about the world. And much is made of him turning young men into atheists and making them uh, think too hard. And, and this comes around again at the end of the book when Athens is trying to restore itself and they start seeing Socrates as a threat. But he's kind of this, he is this like dead poet society figure like woven throughout the arc of the book mm-hmm. where the everyone in alexis's generation have all been like all of his close friends have been sitting around with socrates at various times and he gets them to think and gives them a sense of worth in the world that they can do something with their minds um and these are all upper class people anyway so they have an expectation that they are going to do something great even if it is just in the military um which just in the military seems uh incorrect especially in this society there's a lot about honor and justice yeah um the plot kind of picks up after that point. It does spend some time just going like, here's Greece. Here are the people doing their stuff. They like wrestling. There's men and younger men, and that's the kind of thing that happens. Um, so Alexis' dad goes off to war, and this is kind of one of the first big like plot moments. I was like, this is kind of nuts. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you like how much the war factors into this, because like historically, it's it's a big deal, like yeah. as, as far as something going on in the background. They initially they make a lot out of the fact that this war is looking like it's going to go on way longer and is going on way longer than Troy. Like Troy was 10 years and is the stuff of legend. And this thing's mm-hmm. going on for 24 years. Yeah. So in the initial parts of the book, Alexis isn't old enough to participate in it. So his dad goes off to war and his mom is pregnant and his dad sends back a letter and says, uh, expose it if it's a girl. Like, if it's a boy, great. If it's a girl, we don't have the means, expose it. Lo and behold, Andrew, he, he has a sister. Okay. And he throws the letter away. Okay. And writes his dad a letter says, we never, we haven't heard from you. I hope you're okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I totally didn't see your text, baby. What are you talking about? Hey. I see the red receipt right there. I, I totally, um, nope, didn't get it. That's like a weird iOS bug. Yeah, it's like my phone, like it ran out of battery. It's so weird. The re- my reception in Thieves is so like, it's so bad. Sorry. So that's the first kind of conflict where... Alexis makes this big decision for himself. And then later on, you think that his dad has died. And so he ends up kind of getting into the war himself when the Spartans start raiding Athens. Mm-hmm. And this is where he and Lysus's relationship takes off. Everyone kind of knows that they're two of the best looking guys around. Lysus is a really good wrestler, except it's more than just wrestling. It's called the, have you heard of this, Andrew? It's the pancreatast or the pancreatus. The pancreas, the pancreasish. Tell tell me what it is again. Again, I'm, I was more of a Latinist than a Greek person. That's, I had I had to refresh my memory on the stuff that it sounds like I know. So. It's it's wrestling, but you it's basically Greek ultimate fighting. You can you wrestle, you punch. You're just not allowed to bite or like cut people. Okay, and you have to make the other person submit. 
uh so maybe it's maybe it's it is wrestling it's not the kind of like wrestling that people do in middle and high school here today right um or on tv on the wwe no it is oh it's actually seems kind of similar to is it a little like wwe (laughs) there's a whole can you smell what lysis is cooking It's it's a mix of WWE and Rocky because there's a whole sequence. <laughs> they go to the Olympic Games in its or the Isthmian Games, I suppose. Not the Olympic Games, the Isthmian Games, where Alexis like wins a race because he's super fast, and uh, Lysis has a really terrible fight against this like hulking behemoth, and it's this kind of like Rocky Four scenario that happens, or you know, uh, pick a rest John Cena versus. Uh, what's the, the giant taker andre the giant john cena fights andre the giant through time that's uh it's like a n64 game that has like the complete roster going all the way back yes and you make two characters from any point in history fight each other yes that's exactly what it is mm-hmm. uh and after that happens there's like they enter the rocky part in their relationship and this is something that now, is this like a, a rough patch or is this a part that's more like the movie Rocky because you were just talking oh, about the movie Rocky? That's, it's a good point. I mean, there are Rocky <laughs> parts in the relationship that Rocky has with Adrian in the Rocky movies, but uh-huh. let's, for the sake of clarity, use the word rough. They okay. hit a rough patch after the It's Me and Games where they've been hanging out fighting and it's been cool. They've been like sending Spartans away when Spartans raid their farms and stuff and everyone knows that they're together. But Lysis has a real hard time with the fact that he lost at the Isthmian Games and almost died. Like, the the Ivan Drago character basically squished him. Mm-hmm. And he has a hard time dealing with Alexius's success. And Alexius doesn't know how to relate to Lysis in this kind of new... He doesn't know how to mend that fence. So, it's this interesting type of relationship that can exist... In another, there are analogs, I suppose, in the modern day, but like the way that honor and what men are capable of in this society or expected to accomplish is wrapped up in what is otherwise like a loving relationship as we understand it through the 21st century lens. Mm-hmm. So that type of jealousy and misunderstanding, it's just interesting to see it so honestly portrayed with two male characters without any like pretense of judgment about their feeling for each other. That makes yeah. like it's, it's, it does make sense because gender and sexuality are constructs. <laughs> yeah, they, they are aren't real. So from there that that's like the first third is their kind of budding relationship, which they do repair because Alexius stages a boar hunt and asks uh, Lysis to come with him, and they almost die because Alexis is being an idiot. And then they make up, and they're better again. <laughs> they don't. They don't ever really fight after that. They have their own little spats they talk about, but it kind of gets breezed over. Mm-hmm. From there on out, it really dives into their the roles that they do and do not play in the history of Athens that is part of historical record. So they join the navy. This guy, Alcibiades, uh, messes up one of their fights around Samos, I think. And the oligarchs take Athens. Uh, and then the navy assists with a rebellion against the oligarchs in Samos, which then allows uh, folks back home to overthrow the oligarchs there. I think that's like the 400 or so. Is that the name of that group? Mm-hmm. 
And so they go back to Athens and things are a little bit better. Meanwhile, Alexis's dad has returned Truman Show style. Like he's totally just come back. Um, I don't know if it's quite Truman Show. Style. Do you not remember when they like bring Truman's dad back? No, and he's, but like, like homeless and yeah, nobody I, recognizes I him. The, I remember the part of the movie. I just don't know that it's like a direct comparison. Well, he drawn. comes back after several years' absence, and he's been enslaved in a foreign country, and he's all raggedy. And his daughter, who has been told that her father was this glorious, beautiful man, is now confronted with this like homeless-looking guy, Jerko. Yeah, yeah, and she like is terrified of him and this is the first moment where i'm gonna make my second pop culture reference that i planned where alexis goes full-on forrest gump and they Mm -hmm. get in a fight about this uh about his sister and whether or not they're gonna keep her because she's like three at this point and it is clear that someone put in alexis's dad's mind that maybe it's alexis's kid remember it's not his real mom, so he could have had sex with her if he wanted to, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Um, and in that moment, he and his father stare each other down, and then Alexis just runs away. He just <laughs> runs. He is good at running. He's We've very, established He goes full-on Forrest Gump and just runs into the hills, and he has like a vision where the fates are chasing him, and he falls off a cliff uh, and then gets better and comes back. And apparently his stepmom likes made everything better and like talked her dad talked his dad down cool uh but so he has this like predilection to madness i suppose so then from there uh they go back out in the navy and there's like a whole section where the athenian fleet is completely outmatched by the spartans and their allies and a bunch of generals just totally peace rather than saving the boats that get destroyed and and uh, lysis and alexis are the only people who survive their boat And so when they finally make it back and Athens is kind of regrouping, they put all of these generals on trial. And it's the first time that there's like a collective group trial, which is its own kind of slippery slope away from democracy. Yeah, right. And Socrates is the lone senator who objects, so they just ignore him and kill them anyway. Then... Lysis takes a wife, and this is one of the most explicit instances where the book fails women pretty, or at least, not fails women, but does, or is it the book failing women, or is it the society failing women and the book depicting depicting it accurately? Depicting it pretty nastily, how about? What do you, let's let's lay it out, and then we can make the judge, we can make a judgment. So Lysis wants to marry this young girl named Thalia. He's -hmm. going back and forth with... Uh, Alexius, who's like, that's what you got to do. You're good. You're gonna marry someone. You're gonna have kids. It's fine. And she's super young. She's like 13 or 14, and she's got an older, kind of shrewish uh, relative. And Lysis is afraid that she's gonna turn her that way and make her like dislike and distrust men. So she's not gonna be as good of a wife. Okay. And he convinces Alexis of this, to which Alexis says. Sure. Get your winged boots and unchain her before the dragon arrives. Jeez. And like, you got to marry her super young before she becomes a wife you wouldn't want. Got to lock just... that down. Well, I mean, the age thing is not inaccurate. Like, it was totally common for 15, 16-year-old yes. women to marry dudes who are twice their age. It, but it just felt like the language that was chosen didn't have to be chosen. I don't know. 
It's sure, sure. Yeah, I, I guess I would I would err on the side of saying it's depicting the society accurately. Yes, that's fair. At the at the expense of like being decent to its women. <laughs> that's that's true. But you're the you're the one who read it, so maybe like you're getting a a different vibe from it firsthand than I'm getting just from that's also only it. a couple pages away from her using the phrase higgledy piggledy which se- seemed like a huge anachronism how yeah how do you translate that into Greek <laughs> higgelos piggelos I suppose yeah that's that's pretty good I it just yeah I don't know there was like bump to bump anachronistic just right there or something that just screamed modern to me where the rest of the book doesn't feel like it was written in the particularly written in the 20th century yeah like maybe uh, if you're if you were reading it with a historian's eyes you would have seen something but that's the point where to you yes the lay person correct the, the illusion slipped a little bit yes okay cool uh then it kind of becomes it's a slightly different book in the last section um the athenians are pretty messed up and the spartans siege the city and they they do so by starving them out, forcing them to take in all of their exiles. This is uh, the Spartan leader Lysander, I believe is a mm-hmm. real person. Yes. And he forces them to take in all their exiles from the other cities and towns, which starves them out. And kind of martial law starts to happen. And finally, after several months and like many main characters die and things are not going great, um, their terms are that they're going to reinstate some of the oligarchs who we deposed earlier, mm-hmm. and there's going to be 30 of them. And this is later called the 30 tyrants. And this, I was interested to find that that's like a real historical thing. Yeah. Uh, including Critias, who is our pederastrum earlier, and a whole bunch of other people that are painted not so greatly. And they take over the town in exchange for the Spartans kind of remaining as a police force, but not, but like still letting them have an economy and eat again. And that goes really poorly. It becomes like a George Orwell book for a period of time. They make it so that only 3000 men are citizens and then they can just cross your name off that list and just kill you indiscriminately. Uh, Mm. They ban the teaching of logic, which is like a law specifically directed at Socrates. And eventually they end up sneaking away Lysis and Alexia do and recruit help from Thebes and come back with some other real people from history whose names I don't recall and uh, take back the city and it they get like you get like a little animal house ending where you find out who made it and who didn't um, and kind of some <laughs> some little nods is that pop culture number three is that <laughs> Yes, the three you would be visited by three pop culture ghosts, and you have, <laughs> uh, and uh, the the kind of the thought that you're left with at the end is Athens in this period of time has become an oligarchy, become a democracy again, and then become this weird autocracy oligarchy thing that was ruled by an aristocracy, and then has ostensibly become a democracy again, and you meet this new character who I believe is. Antilus, who ends up uh, trying Socrates later in history. And he and Alexius get into a discussion where it foreshadows what's going to happen to Socrates in real life. And they start talking about, like, what it is to be democratic and what it is to have excellence 
in a town where everyone is ostensibly equal. Yeah. And Antilus has all these anxieties about people who go to Socrates and hang out and talk uh, rather than learning an honest trade that they will then, you know, share with their common man the burden of work. And Alexis responds, Must we forsake the love of excellence then till every citizen feels it alike? I did not fight, Anatus, to be crowned where I have not run, but for a city where I can know who my equals really are, and my betters to do them honor, where a man's daily life is his own business, and where no one will force a lie on me because it is expedient or some other man's will. I've read that, and it just, it feels really relevant to some things that we talk about today in debates in the 2,000-year-long presidential campaign that is our lives, (laughs) where it's like, how do you balance the good of the common man and the the myth of the common man and the truth of the common man Mm -hmm. with the notion that, like, you need experts and you need people who are going to be better at things than other people. How do you get them all to buy into like a commonality while still honoring what different people are good at and still honoring? Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, that's, that's part of the, I don't know, like the backlash against science and and medicine from from a lot of corners. Like, and, and sometimes it takes particularly, bad forms like the anti-vax movement and sometimes it takes arguably less like like maybe not scientifically uh backed up but not as explicitly harmful stuff like the anti-gmo stuff and like the the movement to like have fewer chemicals and things like and well then it's balanced out with the extreme data movement where like people's emotions don't matter if you could just prove it with data and reduce all behavior to data, then everyone would get on board. Like that's what happens when middle managers rise too far as they all like, <laughs> they all just want there to be data for everything. Well, good. All of our middle manager <laughs> listeners just quit. That's fine. It's fine. I think I'm our, I think we're both sort of yeah, in middle management are. in our respective organizations. So I quit. It's fine. Um, so that's like the, the larger question at the heart of this book i think uh especially as socrates is so expertly woven in and out of the story where routinely his role in all of this is questioned and and a character i didn't really talk about too much is alcabiades alcabiades i think you're closer to the first alcabiades it could also Uh, be like alcabiades yeah i don't know uh he was spared by socrates early in the peloponnesian war and he went on to play like both sides of the war multiple times. Right. Where he may or may not have done, uh, he may or may not have been responsible for this event at the beginning of the book called the Breaking of the Herms, where everyone's statues outside of their house were all desecrated at once, which people think was like a tactic to demoralize them in advance of some sort of siege. Mm-hmm. And then he joins the Spartans, and then he comes back, as I said earlier, and then he leaves again, and then dies fighting or in exile. It's kind of unclear. Uh, And the fact that he was spared and was a student of Socrates for a period of time casts him and him as the paragon of wisdom and thorough logic and thought into this 
like limbo. Yeah, because it it seems like this book is using Socrates as like may, less as a character maybe and more as a symbol of what Athens was. So let's let's talk about the Peloponnesian War just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to belabor it too much, but um so this the Peloponnesian War is kind of the end of Athens golden yes. age. Like yes. Athens formed this not an empire, but a confederation of like other Greek city and city states called the Delian League. Sure. And they did that to fight the Persian Empire. Yep. But Athens Athens started just taking its allies ships and doing kind of whatever with them. <laughs> uh-huh. And so they were they were having uh discord within the ranks at the same time as Sparta and then later Sparta and Persia uh were were fighting them from outside. And the Athenian navy suffers this huge defeat, and then eventually Athens gets gets cast down, and it's just it's never as good for them again. And so it sounds like Socrates is this symbol of like the quote unquote height of their of their golden age, where they didn't have to think about you know fighting wars all the time. They didn't have to think about like the day in day out work of just making a society happen. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. they didn't have to like some people could afford to sit and dedicate their minds and their lives to stuff that was deeper and higher, for lack of a better yeah yeah term. And now that Athens has been cast down and that they, they don't have that luxury anymore, like there is not a place for Socrates in this society. And that's reflected even in Alexis's journey because he starts out, his family is upper class, they own property, people pay rent to them, they have farmland, and over the course of the book, he ends up having to go out there and do more work on it himself because like Mm. the spartans come and all the slaves run away and then the spartans come again and they burn it to the ground and then they're sieged and so no one can go there and when he comes back from exile in thebes uh he starts there first because some of the the oligarchs have taken it over so like even his property is mirroring this fall of athens as a whole and it is it's interesting that you use the phrase golden age because you're certainly right and the book does not shy away from referring to the city as golden multiple times like yeah i mean the golden age is the the historical term that people use to refer to this era of athens so i just yes it just yeah 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 it's 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 cool that it's reflected in the book you know like it's characters are speaking about it Yes. In a way where if you know about it, you're like, oh, look, look at these people. They're they're going to be victims of their own hubris later. (laughs) I haven't read I haven't read straight up historical fiction in a while. And like we talked earlier, this is so uh, the sources for this are so scattered and so specific and so specifically limited that she can certainly get away with a certain amount of fudging. Yeah. And as I said to you over the weekend, like she can pull an HBO Rome and just shove some made up characters right next to people who are real. Yeah, right. And we can just kind of accept that maybe they were there and maybe they weren't. And it doesn't really well, matter. And then we can and, and she can take like disparate facts about stuff that happened in Greek society and then attribute it specifically to one dude who she made up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, she can also then spend a lot of time talking about young Plato as sort of an ugly, talented wrestler who then discovers philosophy and goes on to rival Socrates. <laughs> it's okay. kind of great. 
Because the first time that you meet him, it's like, who's that burly guy who's like too muscly to be really good at wrestling? But right now he's doing pretty well. Oh, it's Plato. He's oh. sort of a Jesse the Body Ventura of his day. Yes, he was. <laughs> <laughs> Except imagine the reader who has heard tales of the great philosophy of Jesse the Body Ventura all his life. And then you turn the page and it's like, it was Jesse Ventura. <laughs> uh, so it's. I liked it. It's it's a tricky book because I, I certainly found myself getting lost in city names and the geography of it. I don't think it does a great job because it's so personal. If you don't know that region very well, yeah, uh, it's easily to get lost. Um, well, we've we've talked about that before. Like you have to balance the the need to write natural dialogue with the need to info dump for the benefit of the reader. So yeah, you're not gonna have like Alexius like thinking, oh, the general, what's his name, who totally did all this stuff. Yeah, that's the guy. <laughs> no, and and I could I'll certainly admit that there are probably parts where I was just straight up confused because I just don't know all the stuff, and so I was getting mm-hmm. distracted by that. Uh, she does spend a decent amount of time on not not time on it like explaining it explicitly but their the religion is woven in interestingly in the amount of sacrificing they do the prayers that get made and vows that get made throughout the book um to the various gods for a bunch of different reasons um there in particular there's a moment when they're trying to take Athens back and they're holed up in the city of File, and um, or it's like a fortress, I guess. And Zeus like smiles on them, and it starts snowing. And so mm-hmm. the army of the thirty tyrants ends up leaving, uh, so that they are able to take all their stuff and build up their army for the eventual siege back on Athens. But then it, there's this really cool nod to it at the end of the book, where they meet some guys uh, from Thebes. And they talk about different theories of how the sun works. And everyone knows that like the sun is Helios and that's related to the gods and that's great. But they, they, one guy thinks it's like a mirror that reflects light at the heart of wherever all the gods live. And one person kind of goes to town on the, it's a chariot that's magic that flies through the sky. <laughs> uh, but they admit that there are as many philosophers as philosophies right yeah i really i I really wish i mean maybe that's what we're fighting toward in america today is where science is just like whatever you think it is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so like i wish we could go back to that where just like you could be a cool philosopher just by having a neat opinion about what you think the sun does as long as you use logic enough to get mm-hmm. to you, it's there are i don't know there's something about the let's just sit around and logic stuff that can be really enjoyable. And that's certainly something that jives with even, I think, our experience at like a middle of nowhere little liberal arts college where it's like, we have time. Let's just talk let's about just something. Think. Let's just think a bunch. And let's like spit out theories and poke holes in each other's theories. And isn't that great? And then, of course, this book is about a city of people doing that and it going to crap. So maybe it's not the best behavior. Do you think that the cars in the movie Cars are sexual beings? No. There's a question for you to sit and think about. You have to work from the assumption that they are, Andrew. Otherwise, how do they? Oh, no, I totally am. I'm just saying, like, what are what are the ramifications for that? 
within the wider universe. And then, you know, it expands out and out and out into like, how does this government work? Like what, what fossil fuels are they like? What fossils are they getting all their fuel from? Like, what do they look like inside? Mm-hmm. And well, are and they the, just like Cylon Raiders up in there and they're just fulfilled with like warm goop? Or are there skeletons of their initial drivers and those ghosts are the ones that have turned them into cars that drive mm-hmm. around? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Persians believed that uh, the gods were embodied in the cars and that gods mm-hmm. created the cars to besiege man. Ka-chow! Ka-chow! <laughs> That's that's this book. It's the we probably didn't give the male romance aspect of it enough due. If only, and I'll say that like it's easy to do that because the book just does a good job saying that that's just what people do. Yeah, like I'm, I'm I am glad we got to talk about it being like a normal thing, and and I'm sort of glad that that's, it's reflected in the in the text as like not being some bizarre like weirdo thing that people would have commented upon in the day you know no her ability to completely eschew modern trappings save for one use of the phrase higgledy piggledy uh, <laughs> kind of allows her to explore it in a thought space removed from those judgments which sure. is yeah really refreshing good uh, and yeah then if you get lost in this historical fiction that's like its own thing but to see that relationship play out in all of its myriad ways, and it, it does in the pulpy way that you think it does by the end, and you know those those kind of romantic fiction tropes are certainly not missed by the book or skipped by the book. Yeah. Uh, but they're they're good characters. I don't know. I I liked them a lot, and uh, I thought the the whole boar hunting thing was pretty great. Where he's cool. just like, "Come with me." And it's like this is a bad idea, and you know it's a bad idea. And <laughs> I'm gonna call. It's like a series of bluffs got called until they almost died and then made up. It's, it feels like every every relationship that you take to the brink and then bring back is pretty well, pretty identifiable. Uh, if you have thoughts on relationships or Greek society or whether the cars in the movie cars were sexual beings, you can tweet them to us at twitter.com/overduepod or hit us with them on Facebook at facebook.com/overduepod. Uh, we also have an email address that's <laughs> overduepod at gmail.com. That's and true. We, we check that all the time. Craig, have we been getting some communications from people? This yeah, week? we had a, a really great week, and so I just want to thank you guys for that. Um, a whole bunch of people reached out, and even more people than I have names for written here uh, were. Kind of just giving us the the digital thumbs up on all of our book ride activity. But I want to thank Dana and Swan and Tessa and Maria and the Double Day Publishing Twitter and Sophie, <laughs> Alex, Cara, Jonathan, Christine, Jen, JD, uh, Lena, uh, Mari, Sarah, Melissa, Terry, Eric, Rachel, Maria, Kirsty, Lauren, Teresa, who mentioned that we didn't talk about ghost lights in theaters in our Urban Legends podcast, but that's totally. Mm-hmm. A whole urban legendy thing to talk about. Uh, Kathy, Albie, Allison, uh, Nasha, Catherine, and Kara and Nick both sent us in great emails. So thank you for that, Andrew. Yo, what's our website about? Uh, our website is at overduepodcast.com. Up there, you can find our iTunes page, Stitcher page, RSS page. Those are all different ways to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they drop every Monday. Uh, we also have links to we have Amazon links to the books that we have read that we are going to read. You can use to support us. Uh, we have a Patreon project you can use to support us in a continuing way, which we really appreciate. That's helped us pay for hosting and books and all kinds of stuff this year. 
Um, we have links to uh, HeadGum, which is our podcast network, where you can find shows like Gilmore Guys, uh, If I Were You, Twinovation, um, Shock and Awesome, and like a million others. I think they pick up one or two every week lately. Yeah, it's pretty which cool. Is, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we also have you can you can find our podcast host Spreaker up there. Uh, they are generously hosting us, so thank you to them for that. Um, and yeah, thanks to all of you guys again, uh, not just for the book riot, uh, reactions, but also for your warm response to our ghost stories and urban legends episode. I know it was a little like goofy and not standard, but, uh, you guys seem to dig on it and we had fun recording it. So maybe like with future bonus episodes, maybe we can play around with the format a little bit more and see what we can do beyond reading another book, another traditional book. But speaking of Andrew, what are you going to read for next week? Um, I'm going to be reading A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Interesting. Yeah, I know nothing about either of those things, but it's a it's a recommendation from a patron, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. Great. Sounds good cool. to me. All right. Anything else? No. All right. We're done. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, we will see you next Monday, and until then, try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast. That's that's the one where there's a dead person and then they and then that kid pukes up all that pie. That's stand by me, right? No, that's Matilda. That's no, they also No, that's when that's when he eats all that cake. Yeah. There's and totally, the trunchbull the trunchbull throws that girl out a window so, by her pigtail. Totally a part of Stand By Me where there's they eat too much pie. It's like an eating contest or something. Man. The Trunchbull is, like, not a good person. Have you read Matilda? I have not read Matilda. Have you seen the movie Matilda? I think so. What? So you, my tr- sick Trunchbull references are just flying right over your head? Right over my head. Oh, you can do it, Brucey. You eat that whole cake. Because this kid, he was a fat kid, right? Well, sure. And, that I mean, that was his main defining characteristic in the book. So he... Went and he snuck a piece of cake in the cafeteria. And then the Trunchbull, the mean superintendent, she calls this assembly of all the kids in the whole school. And she's like, hey, Bruce, you like cake, right? And he's like, yeah, I guess I like cake. And she's like, well, have a piece of this cake. And the cook brings out this cake. And he's like, okay, I'll have some cake. And then she's like, well, have another piece of cake. And he's like, eh, I don't want another piece of cake. And she's like, no, you have another piece of cake. And then he has to eat the whole cake and he's really like sweaty and not doing so great. And then the kids start to to yell, you go for a Brucey, you could do it. You you eat that cake. And they're like standing up to the Trunchbull and then he eats the whole cake. And then the movie version, I think the Trunchbull breaks a plate over his head, but I could be misremembering that part. Cool. Let me look that up. Okay. Trunchbull. I'm sorry this is far more important to you than it is to movie me. Matilda.
somebody has a YouTube channel where they do food and they made the trunch bowls chocolate cake. What? Anyway, what do you want to talk about? 